All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Thank you for being here. This is Just Human, number 177. It is Friday. Hope you're having a great day and that you have a great weekend. We have some news to cover. Um, sorry I wasn't here on Wednesday, but I had some things come up that I need to take care of. And I did take care of them. And, uh, yeah, I am back. And I've had a uh, – the news cycle has been a little bit difficult it's been active, but it's been kind of difficult for me to decide what direction I wanted to take my show, um, what topics I wanted to cover. And, you know, I, I really wanted to cover Matt Taibbi's latest thread on um, the Twitter files on Monday, and I didn't get to it because of other stuff. And then since then, there's been some other news come up that has really grabbed my attention. And I don't know if I'll get to these Twitter files. Um, the Hamilton 68 stuff is really interesting. Um, but really it boils down to more confirmation of the, the, the move that the, uh, the, that this whole, all this app, all these apparatuses of the deep state and of the, uh, the techno bureaucracy and the media bureaucracy all coming together to try and push the Russia collusion narrative. Um, and, uh, we already know that we already know that it's just more and more evidence of it. And I feel like. Some of that stuff, some of the Twitter files that are coming out, it's it's less for us than it is for some of the normies and some of the people who were a little uh, on the fence about stuff. Um, like, I feel like it's an information rollout to to people who haven't been paying as much attention to this stuff and who trust had trusted sources in the media that they relied on and didn't feel like the media would ever lie to them and didn't feel like there was some sort of uh, operation being conducted to frame Trump. And the Twitter files are exposing that, that actually there was. And if you're watching this show, you already knew that <laughs> if you're watching, if you found this show and are watching it, then you already knew there was a, an operation carried out by journalists and media and uh, the techno oligarchy or whatever to do this kind of thing. Um, so, so anyway, um, I don't know that I will cover that, but there's been more news, more and more stuff having to do with the FBI and with uh, corruption in the FBI and Hunter Biden's laptop and Durham. And there's been a number of things that have come out that I really want to focus on. Today, I'm going to start off with something a little bit kind of fun, which is going to be the Chinese balloon. Um, so we're going to go. That's going to be our first topic this morning. If if you're noticing the camera like freezing a bit like it did just there, that is me. That's not you. I don't know what's up, but that same that same issue with the camera lagging occasionally has come back up after after I had previously solved it. Anyway, it's me. It's not you. All right. Let's get to this silly balloon thing. Let me open up some tabs real quick. Okay, so we got this balloon that has been spotted over uh, Montana that is of Chinese origin. And this guy right here, Dan Satterfield, meteorologist dude, um, 
he says, look, this is the, this is the path it took from China. It definitely originated from mainland China and, uh, rode, um, you know, jets, the jet stream all the way over here and entered through Alaska and went down Canada and ended up in Montana where people started spotting it once it got over populated areas. Not that Montana is a highly populated area. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there's more people here than there are in the previous path that it took. It also went over Japan. So this balloon, very high altitude. It's above commercial traffic. According to the Pentagon, they gave a briefing on it. Um, And Secretary Blinken, now this is key. This is key. Secretary Blinken is supposed to have a trip to China next week. And there are now calls like from Senator Cotton here that he should cancel his trip to China because of this balloon. That This balloon is a, uh, this Chinese balloon is an insult to America. It's a provocation. And so we should retaliate by canceling Secretary Blinken's trip. Um, I get that, but I'm going to posit to you that this is a big reason why this balloon is here. This is, this is the, this is why it's here is China is, um, flexing. China is, uh, provoking, um, they're, um, they're giving, they're, they're throwing out an insult in a, uh, in a way that they can by sending this balloon over our airspace and it's hap- it's timed with to happen right before secretary blinken blinken's visit to me it's a diplomatic um slap in a way there this is the if you're wondering why would china do this right now this this is why there's another reason why this the us has secured a deal with the philippines to uh, use some bases there, and that completes an arc around China. Oh, go away, go away. So this is where they're talking about are these these bases, and now we're not building bases there. Um, the it's um they have a strategy called plate. There it is. The U.S. is not looking for permanent bases. It's about places, not bases. So places that we can deploy to and base out of. Um, for operations and for logistics, not building bases. But the Spratly Islands and the Scarborough Shoal and the South China Sea, these are areas that China has been for years, decade, um, building up militarily. They're building artificial islands. They're, they have, they have military bases in the Spratly Islands. Um, and this whole area, this is one of the hottest, this is one of the hot zones in the, in the globe and has been for a number of years. So I think what's happening is that China has sent this balloon over here as a direct insult to the U.S. and a provocation. And the impetus for it is Secretary Blinken's visit to set the tone for that visit, um, to flex, and to respond to this deal that we've made with the Philippines. By the way, this deal right here doesn't sound very Biden-y, does it? The U.S. the U.S. presence in 
the Pacific, the South China Sea, um, our presence in Taiwan, around Taiwan, our presence in Japan and around Japan, the Philippines, Australia, it's been consistent. The U.S. has had consistent presence up close near China this entire time for since Biden took off, since right before Biden took office. And it's pretty devolutionary to me. It doesn't match with what we would expect from Biden, right? You would expect Biden to be weak and to pull U.S. assets away from China and to let China have more wiggle room in this area. Um, but here we are. I know that China, I know that Biden is supposedly, supposedly Biden has all these, these strings attached to Xi and Biden is a puppet of China. He's, uh, he's China Joe. That's the narrative, but it doesn't actually fit. It doesn't act, the, the, the narrative doesn't fit his actions. So that's up for you to decide what that means. To me, it's pretty devolutiony. To me, it shows that Biden isn't fully in charge. Um, and, or it could be, it could be, and, or it could be, or I think it's, and Biden's strings to China have been completely cut and he's not China Joe because his actions don't fit him being China Joe. I think he was China Joe. I think he was Beijing Biden, but no longer. Anyway, this balloon, it's a very serious topic. So let's not make jokes about it, right? Let's not, let's not make jokes about it. This balloon is a very serious topic and, uh, you know, it's such a threat. Yeah, this is not the first incident. And before anybody laughs at this balloon, okay, before anybody starts laughing at this balloon floating over Montana, I want to make sure you know that this is not new. The U.S. has balloons. Uh, China does. Russia does. Many countries use balloons. We've used them in theaters of war. Um, we've used them for surveillance. We've used them for all sorts of things. You may not know that because it's not, I mean, it's look at it. It looks kind of silly, but all, all, all advanced countries use balloons. They're cheap. Relatively speaking, they can, they can be in theater. They can be deployed for very long periods of time and gather data and signal intelligence and surveillance and all, you know, monitor weather, monitor battlefields, all sorts of things. And they can go really, really high altitude above commercial traffic and they're not at risk of getting shot down. Um, so we use balloons, they use balloons and it's not new for, um, balloons to be, uh, spotted over, like we've had incidents like this before. I don't think I saved the article, but we had an incident exactly like this near Hawaii in February of last year. And we've had other incidents where a balloon from another nation has floated into our airspace. Um, there's been lots of incidents like this because heck it's a balloon. It's going to float around with the current, with the weather. Right. So anyway, this isn't like, this has happened before is my main point. Um, no. So since this thing is out there, 
the U.S. has deployed high-altitude fighter jets because that's really the only thing that can hang out in the altitude it's at, which is reportedly it's above commercial traffic. So it seems like this thing is in the neighborhood of 60,000 feet in the air. Um, so the only aircraft that can really hang out there with it are F-22s, F-15s, U-2 spy planes, uh, things like that. So we've been sending F-22s up there. And uh, this is a KC-10 refueler that was spotted with some F-22s that are getting refueled. And they're they're just monitoring this thing, is what they say anyway. What they say is that they're monitoring it. So this is a some quick bullet points here from the Pentagon's briefing. Um, the United States has detected and is tracking a high-altitude surveillance balloon that is over the continental United States right now that the U.S. government, to include NORAD, continues to track and monitor it closely. The balloon is currently traveling at an altitude that is well above commercial air traffic and does not present a military or physical threat to people on the ground. Now, I want to drill this right down. They didn't get into specifics of this, but the, the Pentagon has already said this balloon does not represent a threat. The U.S. thinks it's a high-altitude balloon from China that entered domestic airspace a few days ago. This is not the first time a surveillance balloon has come into domestic airspace. It is appearing to hang out for a longer period than in previous instances. But the U.S. will not say the exact altitude. It is above civilian air traffic, though. Um, the U.S. has used manned military aircraft, including F-22s, to observe the that balloon and in previous instances, when this has happened before, because it has, China's Chinese high-altitude balloons did not loiter for long over the continental United States. Um, they also made this comment that they would not characterize the payload of this balloon as, quote, revolutionary. So it's not... This isn't like some super advanced balloon that's deploying secret technology that's going to mess up our nukes that we have in underground bases or something like that. Um, so what is it? What is going on with this balloon? Well, Trump says, shoot it down. Trump says, shoot this balloon down. And I totally get that. I get why people are like, just shoot it. Just shoot the balloon down. Like, why are we allowing this balloon from a foreign country, a nation that is hostile to us, to loiter over our country? Just shoot it down. I like what the storm arrived said. It is if people are able to see the spy balloon with their own eyes while standing in their driveway, I highly doubt it's a threat. Do you really think the CCP would just brazenly fly a spy craft over the U.S. low enough that everyone could see it? This whole thing feels staged to humiliate Biden. Yes, now. Yes, yes. Now, I am not one who thinks that everything is staged. A lot of people do. A lot of people think that pretty much everything is staged. It's all a movie. It's all actors. It's all scripted, etc. I'm not one who usually jumps to that conclusion. I kind of avoid it and try and find much simpler explanations. Um, 
but this is it. It is. It is staged to humiliate Biden. This is what I think. Remember this comment back here from the the press briefing. Where was it? This right here from the press briefing. They said this 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 does not present a military or physical threat. I think that the U.S. military has probably been jamming this thing since it got over Alaska. As soon as this thing got right about here, we started jamming it. And we may have even disabled it. We may have even used some sort of of ability, either from satellites or from aircraft, to disable this thing completely so it's inert. It's literally just a balloon with some hunk of disabled metal and plastic floating below it. And so now it is just a floating advertisement for Biden's weak foreign policy. That's what I think it is. I don't for a moment, I don't, I don't for one moment believe that the U S military is going to allow any sort of balloon or satellite or device or aircraft to loiter over our nuclear arsenal and conduct whatever sort of surveillance or hacking or intelligence gathering or data gathering that it wants to. There is no, there is no way. There is no way. Mm -mm. And so I think what is most likely and what is within the what makes the most sense to me is that, and it, and it jives with other things. It jives with what the statement was from the, uh, the Pentagon press briefing. And then also notice they said that this one is lingering longer than others have. Perhaps it's lingering longer than others have because we have disabled it already. So it's literally just floating there. Broken, being an advertisement for Biden's weak foreign policy, while Trump gets to get on True Social and say, shoot this thing down. So this whole thing is a funny story. It's really funny. And while Trump is saying shoot it down, I liked what Joshua Steinman said, who is... He's former uh, Trump National Security Council. Okay, he's a former National Security Council staffer, and Ezra Cohen Watnick, Ezra Cohen Watnick re- retweeted this. Um, how can we get our hands on this balloon? I think it'd be best if we captured it personally, um, but it's too high up for some of our aircraft that would be capable capable of capturing it. Um, it's too high up for them to go up there and get it. We would need to lower its altitude in order to capture it. Um, shooting it down would be spectacular, you know, and it would be a show of force and all that. Uh, but capturing it would be the best, right? That would, that would be the best. Um, so that's kind of what I'm watching to have happen is that the military comes up with a clever way to capture it. Um, we'll see. Now I did see right before I went on, uh, right before I started the show, 
I saw that um, some reports, I want to say it was Election Wizard. It's reporting. I like I like Election Wizard um, for his reporting, but he almost never includes receipts for what he posts. So that bothers me. But yeah, so Chinese Foreign Ministry says that they regret the unintended entry of the airship into the U.S. due to force majeure, meaning that the weather took it over here. They couldn't stop it from coming over here. China will communicate with the U.S. to properly handle this unexpected situation. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, whatever. I think, uh, I think this is just a, a staged event to make Biden look bad, and it's working. So, anyway, it's kind of funny for me to see the term force majeure in this context context because where I'm used to seeing force majeure is in uh motorsport. That's what the Europeans call a lot that happen motor um force majeure comes up in racing a lot because like some kind of sort of weather event happens or uh thing, things that are out of the control of the sport and so they they call it force majeure. Uh like the track breaking up and there being a delay and qualifying not being able to happen because of weather or because something went wrong with the timing system or something. So they call it force majeure and they use that to implement. So, so it's kind of weird for me to see, uh, see it used in this context. Okay. I want to grab these two stories right here about Hunter Biden. So we had this first, we had this story that Hunter Biden demands investigations into reporting on his laptop and that he's threatening to sue Tucker Carlson and others because of the reporting on his laptop. So with, oh, what is this from Sammy? Good morning, Sammy the Squirrel. Oh, yeah. I saw a... uh I didn't grab it, but I saw um, a proposed flight path that it could take where it would carry it down into the southeast U.S. Maybe it'll go over. Maybe it'll go over my house and I can watch it. So the thing's up here, but the jet stream should carry it down and then out this way over to the Atlantic Ocean. Maybe when it gets over the Atlantic Ocean, we'll capture it. That really would be best. It gets over the Atlantic Ocean. We can shoot the balloon. It'll deflate, fall to the ocean, and then a ship can pick it up. Um, I know that people are saying it's over Montana. There's nobody living in Montana. Uh, yeah, but there are lots of places that it could fall where it would be extremely difficult to retrieve. Uh, and then predicting, excuse me, predicting where it would fall Predicting where a balloon with a heavy object underneath it would actually, that's falling from 60,000 feet in the air, predicting where it's going to land would be pretty difficult. Um, 
I say just leave it up. I, like I want Trump to say shoot it down because that's makes it even better. That makes it funny. Uh, but I want the thing to stay up and just go across the U.S. as this flying billboard for Biden's weak foreign policy, and then, and then it get over to the Atlantic Ocean and they can shoot it down and capture it. Okay, so Hunter Biden is threatening to sue Tucker Carlson and others because of their reporting on his laptop. And people seized on this because they and said, well, hey, if you're if you're going to sue people over this laptop, aren't you? And by implication, aren't you admitting that it is your laptop? And yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. But they immediately respond and say, no, 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 no. We're not saying it actually is his laptop. He's just getting blamed and getting it's getting called his laptop and he's getting all this bad press, all this defamation based off it. We're not confirming that it's his. We're not confirming that. Um, but it turns out that Hunter had already filed a lawsuit against the repair shop um, owner, uh, Mac Isaac. And what I think about this, <laughs> McKenna says, was his laptop. Yeah, that's correct. Um, what I think about this is that I think it's a weird move. I think it's a weird move to want to do this, to sue people over this laptop, because he's just bringing more attention to it. And then if he does end up suing then there's going to be discovery and there's he's going to he's going to end up having to get not skin on the stand but all the stuff that's on the laptop is going to get paraded in court so how do you like i understand why he would want to sue for defamation if it actually is isn't his but we know it's his. Um, I mean, we know from the freaking DNI that the laptop laptop is authentic. So I feel like this is just inviting more attention to the laptop. And since, since I, and I think many of you, believe that Hunter Biden flipped and turn this laptop in on purpose. And he left other laptops lying around on purpose too. There's not just one, there's more than one. And I think he left them all on purpose in order to transfer some evidence around. That's I'm kind of wondering, is that why he's doing this? Like, is he doing this to draw attention to his family's crooked dealings? Like ensuing for defamation he's not his goal is not actually to his goal is not actually to successfully sue his goal is to expose more of what's on the laptop um cuz i don't see how i don't see how he could successfully sue without informing more people of what's on the laptop. It seems like a really bad move. 
It's weird. Okay. The the anti-Bill Barr and anti-Durham pieces are continuing. And that makes me happy. <laughs> HQ lie and say, I think people in remote villages in China already know about Hunter's laptop. <laughs> so now we have a hit piece from Vanity Fair. Yeah, Vanity Fair. Um, all of the leftist media outlets are going hard against Barr and against Durham. And yeah, it raises suspicion. It's raising my suspicion. They they know something is coming. And it's not it's not the report. <laughs> It's not, it's not the report. Now, Bill Barr has, uh, has defended the probe, has defended Durham. And I want to grab this right here. I think it's this. No, it's not that one. Let's see. New York Times reported last week. Da, 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 da. This is it. I think this is it. Bill Barr's image rehab is kaput. (laughs) Another article from the New York Times trying to destroy Barr. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. Um, There's a campaign. There's a campaign across the media to get out ahead of something. I am absolutely convinced. And I think it possibly it possibly has to do with something new coming from Durham and it's not a report. I think it's indictments. Yep, Brian Murphy, good morning. I think it's imbi- I think it's indictments. I think they are aware of an indictment that's coming. And it just hit me before I get into this thread. One of the lawyers that is in that New York Times piece that I went over on Monday, he represented Stephen Halper. So the only he's the only name source. The only name source in that New York Times article that that was the first salvo launched. He was he represented Stephen Halper to the Durham special counsel during Stephen Halper's interview. So the well the well they're drawing from for these hit pieces are people that Durham has you know, been examining. All right. I want to get to this thread 
because we got, thanks to FOIA fan and Judicial Watch, we got the first installment of pages from a declassified binder. If you remember that when Trump left office on January 20th, 2021, he declassified this big fat binder worth of crossfire hurricane documents. Okay. And he gave that to his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who then gave it over to DOJ and the black pillars have all said that this was really stupid. Trump shouldn't have done that. Um, DOJ is just going to hide it forever. Blah, 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 blah. Black pillar is going to black pill. Now, of course, Trump kept copies of it. Trump isn't stupid. So he's got copies of it. It's not like it's going to be buried forever. But the people who most need this binder of declassified Crossfire Hurricane documents are not the public, although we do need them. The people who need it first are people like Durham who are going to be prosecuting and need these documents for their prosecution. And I have no doubt that it went to DOJ and then went to Durham. But thanks to a FOIA request and some legal wrangling, um, a big chunk of documents has been declassified out of it. And they were published yesterday. And right here is the Google Drive link where you can go and see these documents. Yeah, this is, don't worry about this. This is 343 pages of, of documents here. Okay. And there's a lot of redactions. There's a lot of redactions in these and not all of them, but there are a lot of redactions. And the funny thing about this is that some of these things that are now redacted had previously already been published without redactions. So they've come back in. You can see this one right here, declassified on 5-24-2022. So this is after Trump. After Trump, this was declassified. See that? But it still has redactions on it. Herein is unclassified, date 05-24-2022. So, some of these things... One document that is, I think it, I think it comes up like on page six of this. It's like page six. Yeah. Yeah. Right here. Page six, this document. One document that immediately got attention from a lot of Spygate sleuths is this one because it had already been declassified and published without redactions. But here it is, reclassified. Here is the see, here's the document that John Solomon published on January 20th, 2021. Now that tells you something, right? They took um they took this binder of documents related to Crossfire Hurricane, and they did give the binder to DOJ. But John Solomon specifically, specifically John Solomon, got this one. 
he got this, he got this catch. It's 28 pages of documents that he got. And in it is this, but here it is in this new publication, this new FOIA, uh, drop. And it's been reclassified and it's had redactions added to it. <coughs> Pardon me. All right. Just again, we're going to compare these side by side and I'm going to read them in a minute. Now, you need to understand to reclassify a document is not a simple matter. It is not simple. Um, yet, Emerson Biggins. <laughs> yeah, I do have Trump's uh, perfect phone call. We might listen to it later if we have time, because I'm going to get into some Ukraine stuff. Um, reclassifying a document is not a simple matter. And hat tip to MGI's open on Twitter, because they linked this document in a comment that I saw. This is what it takes to reclassify, Okay. Executive Order 13526 provides that information, quote, may not be reclassified after declassification and released to the public under proper authority unless, unless certain specified conditions are met. To do so, the agency must make a document-by-document document determination that the reclassification is necessary to prevent, quote, significant and demonstrable damage to national security. This determination must be personally approved in writing by the agency head. So whichever agency is going to reclassify it, the head of that agency has to approve it in writing, which in this instance, the FBI reclassified it or DOJ did. did and that means that Ray or Garland signed off on it. I believe it's going to be. Actually, I don't know. I don't know which one it is. I have to admit, I don't know which, whether it's Ray or Garland, it's one or the other had to sign off in writing on the reclassification of this document. Further, the agency must determine that the information previously declassified and released quote, may be reasonably recovered without bringing undue attention to the information. Well, that's definitely not happening here. This has brought more attention. The classification action, reclassification action, must be reported promptly to the assistant to the president for national security affairs and the director of the information security oversight. Now, it links you to some footnotes here. The footnotes take you to executive order 13526. Um, and we're going to get to that in a minute. Finally, if the document is in the physical and legal custody of NARA and has been available for public use, the executive order sets out procedures for suspending public access to the document pending approval of the reclassification action by the director of the information security oversight office. Now here is the rub here. Are the, there's a couple rubs here. Um, one, this document has already been declassified, unredacted, 
and has been disseminated. It's been publicized. It's out there. How are you, how are you going to recover it? You can't recover all these copies. Two, you can't reclassify this and redact it without bringing more attention to it because it has been so widely publicized and is out there. It's at, it's it's across websites. There's multiple. I mean, you're never going to recover all these copies of the unredacted version. So why reclassify it? It seems like this should have been denied right here. Now, one explanation, and I know we haven't got to what is actually the document is. We're going to get to that in a minute, okay? I'm going to read what this document actually is. One explanation for this reclassification that I have seen offered in a few places is that DOJ set Trump up by reclassifying it. That they knew Trump had a copy of this document and they wanted to get Trump. So they reclassified it because now that means Trump has a classified document he's not allowed to have. Go after him, FBI, raid him. That's the that's the popular take I'm seeing brewing up. And I get that. I get that take. And it's at least partially based on the timing of Trump's back and forth with NARA and DOJ over the dock store at Mar-a-Lago. I get why people would, would get to this, but I don't think it holds up. I don't think, I really don't think this, this take holds up. Uh, one, because DOJ was already involved. DOJ entered the picture on February 9th. If you look at when this document was reclassified, it's April 18th. April 18th is when they reclassified it. So the things were already set in motion in regards to Trump's documents long before DOJ made this move. On April 7th, NARA publicly acknowledged for the first time that the Justice Department was involved, but they had already been involved since February 9th. On February 11th, the FBI asked, asked NARA for access to the 15 boxes that NARA already had from Mar-a-Lago, which were voluntarily turned over. And then in between that and April 29th, when the Justice Department sent a letter to Trump's lawyers, is when this reclassification happened. Um, but the letter they sent wasn't, hey, give me more. The letter they sent was, hey, uh, we're notifying you of that more than a hundred classified documents totaling more than 700 pages were found in the 15 boxes. So the FBI wasn't sending a let their letter, which occurred about, you know, 11 days after this reclassification wasn't saying, we know you have more, you better give it to us. It was, Hey, we're looking at these 15 boxes and we found a hundred classified documents in them totaling more than 700 pages. Want to let you know, um, the letter, the FBI and U S intelligence U.S. intelligence agencies need, quote, immediate access to these materials because of, quote, important national security interest. So the idea that it was reclassified 
to trap Trump doesn't really it doesn't really fit with this timeline in my opinion. And nowhere that I have seen anyway has it been argued by DOJ and NARA or by NARA that Trump had docs that were reclassified. I haven't seen that anywhere. It's never come up. We've been we've been dealing with this Trump NARA DOJ battle for exactly a year now. Over a year, because NARA and Trump were going back and forth before um before twenty twenty two. That goes it goes all the way back to like fall of twenty twenty one. I think September twenty twenty one. So this reclassification thing has never come up. Besides, the president can and did declassify this document and it was published. So I do not think this would be the gotcha orange man trick that a few folks seem to think it would be. Um, and I don't, I don't think it would hold up in court. I don't think it would hold up in court that like, let's say this was the play. Trump's lawyers could have just gone, could just go to the court and be like, yeah, he declassified this. It was published unredacted. DOJ reclassified it and redacted it after the fact, but the president had the authority to do what he did. And when he took it, it's completely legal. You can't, you can't come back around and and make a crime up after the fact like this. I don't think any judge would accept this type of trick. So it just doesn't hold up, but that's going to, that's, that's the take that I'm seeing being, uh, uh, posited right now. And, uh, of course, any take pretty much, pretty much any take any, any opinion that starts off from the premise that FBI bad they're after Trump is going to be really popular. That's just, that's just the time period we're in right now. That's what people are going to push. I don't buy it. And I'm sure that's not no surprise to y'all. So, then why has this document been declassified? Now that I've dispensed with what's going to be the popular take, why has this document been declassified or reclassified? Sorry. The clues as to why are in the document itself. It tells you right here. It was classified in accordance with uh, national security intelligence, something, whatever guide, uh, national. I can't remember. I'll define it in a minute. It tells you right here the reason. It tells you what the redactions are. These are FOIA codes that tell you what these exemptions are that allow them to keep these things redacted. So we can use deductive reasoning with this thing, and we can use we can learn what these codes mean or exemptions, and we can figure out why they de- why they reclassified this. The NSICG, which is right here in this top box, stands for the National Security Information Classification Guide. And this is in accordance with this guide. They reclassified this. The reason is 1.4 C. 1.4 C comes from the executive order 13526, which deals with classified national security information. And we've talked about it before on the show. And we've talked about it on devolution power hour. <coughs> that executive order keeps coming back up. Because of this, the subject matter and reason 1.4 C 
is intelligence activities, including covert action, intelligence sources or methods or cryptology. So see, all I had to do was just look at this and scroll down until I found 1.4. See, there's 1.3, 1.4, C. There's the reason for the reclassification. Okay. The redactions are for these reasons. This document right here is very useful. If you want to go and find my thread, you can find this document and save it. If you're a nerd, you might want to have it. This document was created for uh, Special Counsel Mueller's report. Um, it's a very, very simple spreadsheet that shows you what the exemption codes mean when it comes to things that have been redacted. And it gives you, these are the reasons. So you just follow the code and you figure out what the reason is. In very, very basic terms, B6 equals privacy, such as names, address, phone numbers, things like that. B7 equals law enforcement purposes, such as confidential sources or methods for gathering uh, evidence, uh, things like that, things of those natures. So when you see B6, it's privacy. When you see B7, it's law enforcement sources, methods, uh, things like that. This spreadsheet's really useful. So now that we got that stuff and now that we understand those things, we can read this document and we can use our own deductive reasoning to try and figure out why this thing was redacted based on the content that was removed. Okay, so comparing the documents, this is the ones redacted. They basically redacted all the meat of this and they redacted some names up here. Okay, so let's read this thing. Let's read this thing. This isn't a new document, but it's actually this document hits. It hits in a it's like a bit more spicy now. Because the government has suddenly decided to reclassify it and redact it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little bit more tantalizing, I guess. All right. So this is an FBI 302, which is a memo that just like, you know, it's their notes from a meeting. Okay. On Monday, 18th September, 2017, and Tuesday, 19th of September, 2017, Christopher Steele of Orbis Business Intelligence was interviewed at the Grosvenor Hotel, London, England by FBI blank and FBI blank. The following information was provided by Steele over the course of the two day interview on 18th, September, 2017. In the initial part of the interview, Steele was accompanied by his fellow Orbis executive, Christopher Burroughs. After about 45 to 60 minutes on 18th September 2017, Burroughs departed and still remained with blank and blank for the duration of 18th September 2017 and for the entirety of the interview on 19th September 2017. On 18th September 2017, Burroughs opened the interview by expressing concern over loose business ends with the FBI. 
Burroughs explained that he and Steele were still pretty upset about how the relationship with the FBI concluded because of the time and effort that had had been taken to get information to the FBI. Burroughs explained that we had a contact or contract with blank, adding that maybe the contract had been put together with Steele serving as the face of Orbis, but that there had been a contractual relationship. Steele and Burroughs apologized for going to the press back in the fall of 2016. But Steele explained that as the election season went on, they as a company were riding two horses, quote unquote, their client and the FBI. And after FBI Director James Comey's reopening of the Hillary Clinton investigation, they had to pick one horse and chose the business slash client relationship over the relationship with the FBI. They followed what their client wanted, and they spoke to the press. Steele and Burroughs described the overall situation as being one where it was, quote, your FBI fault and our fault. Steele commented that it was not about the money owed, but Burroughs remarked that Steele might not be that concerned about the money, but Burroughs was. So, what did they redact from that? They redacted (coughs) all the meat of it. They redacted all of this meat right here. They redacted the name of the hotel. They kept the FBI agent's names redacted. They redacted Burroughs' name. They left Steele's name in, and they left... Orbis in. The doc is referencing Steele and Burroughs of Orbis meeting with FBI and apologizing for running to the media with the dossier. Steele and Burroughs say they did so because they were riding two horses. One was the FBI, one was their client. That client was Hillary Clinton. And they chose her. So, to reclassify this document, in my opinion, it's fair to deduct and reasonable to conclude that something must be going on with Steele, Burroughs, Orbis, HRC, those FBI agents at the meeting or a combo thereof. Something is going on that relates to the content of this this document here. Something is going on with Burroughs, I believe. Something's going on with Hillary Clinton. And with these FBI agents, something that has caused the FBI to come back around and say, we need to reclassify this document. Our reasons have to do. Our reasons have to do with intelligence activities. 
and we need to take these names out for privacy concerns, and we need to redact the substance of this memo, this 302, for law enforcement purposes. Now, it does seem a bit silly, right? It seems a bit silly to come back and redact all this after you already, you know, it's already out there and everybody can, I mean, some of this stuff, you can just read it and you can infer what they're talking about. I mean, they redact, they redact Burroughs name, but you know who Steele's fellow Orbis executive is. You know, it's Christopher Burroughs. Um, so it's not, it's not like they, Like, you can figure it out. It's easy. And there's other uh, there's other documents in this thing that were also previously unredacted, declassified, and published that have now come back around and been reclassified and redacted. So I think what's going on here is not that the FBI and DOJ specifically went to this document and said, hide these things in this one document. I think what's going on is that an investigation has been opened up relating to the substance of this document, of this meeting, relating to people in this meeting and what is described here. (coughs) And because of that, the FBI has gone back and reclassified multiple documents. I think they've gone back and they've reclassified them and they've, they've just hit a bunch of them, like in a sweeping, a broad reclassification effort. Like, for example, we might be able to determine if we go through all these documents that all the documents that mention Burroughs have been reclassified or all the documents that mention anything having to do with this meeting have been reclassified and redacted. Right. I don't think it, I don't think they specifically pulled this one document out. I think that they did a broad motion and they reclassified a big chunk of documents um, because they, there's an investigation here. And if I had to bet on it, if I had to bet on what is who's who's gaining who's under scrutiny here, I think it's most likely the FBI agents at this meeting. I think most likely it's the FBI agents at this meeting. I think it's next most likely Burroughs, and I think it's next most likely HRC. Like that's how I would rank, and it could be all three. Um, yeah, that's a. Uh, I find it exciting. Like I think this, there's going to be this take, and you're going to see. And I've already seen it in lots of places, like uh, um, right here. See, Margot Cleveland has been on it. She even said that Trump was not charged with possessing classified documents, but with violations of the espionage act. Margo's better than that. I mean, come on, Margo, you know, Trump hasn't been charged with anything. Um, <laughs> Trump hasn't been charged with anything. What are you talking about, Margo? 
And then Rasmussen is quote tweeting her saying, Mar-a-Lago raid updates. The feds are caught retroactively reclassifying material Trump lawfully declassified as president in an attempt to frame Trump. All the while knowing that Biden had been criminally selling U.S. top secrets for big bucks for foreign interests. I hope you all see how this is like clickbait, right? Like I like Margot Cleveland very much. I like Margot Cleveland very much. Total respect. I respect her. I think she does great work. Rasmussen. I like Rasmussen. Same thing. I like Rasmussen very much. I think they do great work. Um, I respect their work. I read it. But I don't think this take is it. I don't think this take is it. Um, once again, people falling for the the walls are closing in on Trump. FBI, DOJ, they're after Trump. Right. Right. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. So, um, this is a great example, this thread, which, um, the process I went through here just to, to pull apart this, this one document, this is a great example of understanding is greater than reacting because the reactionary take is this, this is the reactionary take. Not taking the time to understand it, just reacting to it. Um, the understanding take is like, okay, let's pick this apart and see if we can figure out why. And all the all the the clues you need are in the actual document. You, I, you don't need any special access or skills or anything. All the clues are right there. You just gotta slow down and look at them. So. Howard76, thank you very much for the Rumble rant. Uh, you're, Howard76 is saying really kind things that I appreciate. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that, man. I feel like anybody could do this. <laughs> honestly, honestly, I feel like anybody is capable of doing what I just did. If they just slow down and uh, take the time to do it. So I really appreciate that, man. Thank you. And good morning, genealogy girl and uh, Iowa Trump. Michelle, good morning. Salt Muncher. E.H. Kyle. Elaine Watkins, good morning. All right, let me close some of this stuff. I haven't read through all the other documents in there, so there there may be a lot more substantial stuff. Um, I want to. I'll have to dig into them um, over the weekend, maybe, and see if I can. What else I can find? And there's a lot of other, you know, Spygate researchers who have a lot more information than I do, and uh, that are deeper into this stuff than I am, and they can figure out a lot more than I can, and I hope they do. All right, so. Just want to pick up on this news story from Catherine Herridge. Um, this has to do with Charles McGonagall. And they sent this letter right here. And we're going to check it out. 
This is to Director Ray. I'm going to open these up so they're bigger on the screen this moment. I always pay attention to Catherine Harridge. I think she does a fantastic job. And I also think that she gets... Um, I think she has great sources. And she has an eye for what is actually important. All right, so this is... From the, co- the Congress, the Committee on the Judiciary. Yeah, Congress's Committee on the Judiciary to Christopher Ray. The Committee on Judiciary has continued to investigate allegations of politicization and bias at the FBI. Just like we, just last week, the indictment of former senior FBI official Charles McGonagall, the American people were reminded yet again about the seemingly pervasive problems with the FBI. We write to request material and information about McGonagall's misconduct. On January 23rd, 2023, the Justice Department unsealed an indictment charging McGonagall, former special agent in charge of the New York FBI Counterintelligence Division, for working on behalf of and taking money from Oleg Deripaska, a Russian oligarch with ties to Russian President Vladimir Putin. McGonagall allegedly violated sanctions imposed by the United States and the International Emergency Economic Powers Act by agreeing to investigate a rival oligarch of Deripaska, in return for concealed payment from Deripaska. McGonagall also allegedly laundered money for and conspired to aid Deripaska. McGonagall allegedly took these actions after previously supervising investigations into Deripaska and his Russian rivals. According to the indictment in his role as SAC of the Counterintelligence Division, McGonagall supervised and participated in investigations of Russian oligarchs, including Deripaska. McGonagall also received and interviewed a then-classified list, reviewed a then-classified list of Russian oligarchs with close ties to the Kremlin who would be considered for sanctions to be imposed as a result of Russia's 2014 conflict with Ukraine. This misconduct further erodes public confidence in the FBI's conduct and law enforcement actions. McGonagall's indictment also raises new questions about the FBI's counterintelligence efforts during his employment with the FBI. According to reports, McGonagall previously played an instrumental role, quote, in the decision to launch the crossfire hurricane investigation against then-candidate Donald Trump. Read that again. According to reports, McGonagall previously played an instrumental role in the decision to launch the Crossfire Hurricane investigation against then-candidate Donald Trump. In fact, the same Russian oligarch who paid McGonagall was working with Christopher Steele, whose widely discredited information and sources played an essential role in the FBI's effort to obtain wiretap orders against Trump campaign associate Carter Page. Soon after the FBI launched Crossfire Hurricane, then-FBI Director James Comey promoted McGonagall to be the SAC of New York's Counterintelligence Division, where McGonagall stayed engaged in the aspects of the investigation with his team questioning Carter Page in March of 2017. During the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, the FBI abused its authority and altered evidence to support the illegal surveillance of Page. To assist the committee in conducting our oversight, 
please provide the following information. One, all personnel records regarding Charles McGonagall, including but not limited to his work, history, evaluation forms, security clearance evaluations, and related documents. Two, all documents and communications referring or relating to the FBI's process for assessing and responding to the investigations concerning Charles McGonagall. And three, all documents and communications referring or relating to the actions taken or planned to be taken by the FBI to mitigate the national security risk posed by Charles McGonagall's actions. Please provide this information as soon as possible, but not later than 5 p.m. on February 16, 2023. Boom. Between now and February 16th. To the extent a complete response to this inquiry requires a provision of classified information, please do so under a separate cover. In addition, we ask that you arrange a member-level meeting to discuss the FBI's investigation of Charles McGonagall, its review of pertinent FBI procedures and protocols, and the FBI's assessment of the national security risk posed by McGonagall's collusion with Deripaska. This briefing should include, but will not be limited to, the following questions. What process is the FBI using to review decisions made by McGonagall to open, close, or resource counterintelligence matters during his tenure with the FBI? What review, if any, is the FBI undertaking to ascertain how the Russian Federation and its oligarchs, such as Oleg Deripaska, turn FBI officials? (coughs) Pardon me. What process is the FBI using to review ongoing matters that may have been improperly influenced by foreign actors? who had improper influence over FBI officials such as McGonagall? And what process is the FBI using to review closed matters that may have been improperly influenced by foreign influence over FBI officials such as McGonagall? What screening and ongoing monitoring does the FBI utilize to ensure that senior officials do not end up working on behalf of malign foreign actors? Please arrange for this briefing to occur as soon as possible, but no later than February 16th. Signed, Matt Gates and Jim Jordan. So they are asking for all of those documents by February 16th. And then also a briefing from the FBI in person before February 16th. Now, unlike some of the other things they have requested recently and got blocked on or it was refused, I think they're going to get a lot of answers here because they're not asking for insight into an ongoing investigation necessarily. They're asking for what are you doing to review this guy? How deep was this guy? Can we get records of this guy's? This is, this is oversight. Like this hits more of the oversight realm where they want to know about employment records and his clearance reviews and how was he flipped into a Russian asset? Um, all of those things. And I want to make this point because I don't think I've made it. Um, and reviewing the McGonagall situation um, as much as I should, and I don't think others really have either. Charles McGonagall, as the special agent in charge of counterintelligence in New York, that is the New York field office and the Washington field office. They are... They are the premier counterintelligence offices. They are the best of the best. 
those are the offices that deal with the most counterintelligence. Those are the offices that deal with the most significant counterintelligence investigations. So this wasn't just some, this isn't just some agent who's among hundreds, thousands of agents. This is top tier. This is super high up. Um, and this is a, this guy was supposed to be running counterintelligence against the Russians. And instead he was working for these Russian, all this Russian oligarch there, Posca. This is such a, this scan, I can't, I'm actually kind of surprised that the, that more media has not made like on the right hasn't made a bigger deal of just what a scandal this is that this guy flipped for a Russian oligarch. It's it's it, guys, this is the worst scandal to hit the FBI in so long. And I know that everybody was like, well, crossfire hurricane is a scandal. Uh, spy gates, a scandal, Russia gates, a scandal. Yeah. All those things too. But <laughs> this is, this agent being turned in the way he was with the access he had. Um, that's why Trump said the other day that this guy should get the death penalty, which I think is indicate what in, that indicates to me, because what this guy's been charged with so far does not come anywhere close to meeting a death penalty. But Trump saying that tells me that Trump knows this guy. Trump knows this guy has a, uh, there's more. There's, there's more. I don't think these are the only indictments he may get. I really don't. Um, I think, I think there's much more of this. And I already see y'all mentioning Chanel Rion. Chanel is amazing, and I just want to draw your attention over here just for a moment. Just something something you may – I just feel like you need to notice um, over here. Just a moment. Um, just want to uh, draw your attention. Uh, I'm having a little trouble right here with the Zoom. Um, just, just, just a moment. Just a moment. Um, just trying to get the zoom to work right. Just, um, let's see. No, that's not what I wanted. Maybe, um, right here. Oh, oh, just, just that right there. Just, um, yep. Yep. Right there. <laughs> anyway, anyway, I got this report and I'm going to play it for you while I go refill my uh, coffee cup. This will count as our, our inter intermission. So give me just a moment. I'm going to make sure this audio is not too loud for y'all. Here we go. Get this right here. 
Welcome to Weekly Briefing. I'm Chanel Rion. That's a little low on volume. Let me get that. I'm going to turn that up. Welcome to Weekly Briefing. I'm Chanel Rion. If you were to ask the average American whether they trust the FBI, how would they respond? The answer lies in the story of Charles F. McGonagall, FBI poster boy, handcuffed and hauled away this week because he was caught. Caught being the Kremlin's most valuable asset. Charles McGonagall wasn't just some low-level, treasonous double agent who got cash for trash. McGonagall was the FBI counterintelligence chief in New York, specializing in Russian intelligence. He was also the FBI's cybercrimes chief in Washington, D.C. And buckle up, here's the irony. McGonagall was neck deep in the Trump-Russia hoax, fueling FBI conspiracies that Trump was a Russian agent. Color America shocked. The guys who lied and said Trump was a Russian spy are themselves Russian spies? Cue theme song. So yes, Charles McGonagall is about to go down in history as the highest-ranking FBI agent charged with working on behalf of the Kremlin. Of course, he pleads not guilty. Here's what McGonagall was caught and charged with Monday. We learned from the Southern District of New York, of all places, McGonagall was working with a powerful Russian oligarch named Oleg Deripaska. McGonagall is charged, among other things, with taking secret payments from this oligarch. Deripaska, who at one time was Russia's richest man, in exchange for illegal favors. On a side note, you don't become the richest man in Russia without Vladimir Putin's explicit blessing. Deripaska is still a billionaire, yes, with a B, but nowadays Deripaska has a problem. He is a sanctioned man, banned from traveling and doing business on American soil or with Americans. Deripaska wanted those sanctions lifted so he could freely travel to America. McGonagall was the guy to help him. According to this week's criminal indictment against McGonagall, this top FBI official sat in a parked car outside a New York restaurant while a Deripaska lackey handed him a bag of cash, $80,000. McGonagall is also charged with having received two more such payments soon after all while still receiving a salary paid for by you, the American taxpayer. And in the FBI's own words, this week, Deripaska is the Kremlin, a close associate of Putin. So in other words, the federal government says McGonagall, as a top FBI leader, took almost a quarter million dollars in secret cash from the Kremlin. Kremlin cash to investigate Kremlin enemies and do their bidding. The money was then processed through a series of shell companies, money laundering factories, basically. Sound familiar? No wonder the FBI turned a blind eye to all of the Biden family shell companies. So maybe we were wrong about this all along. Maybe it wasn't the swamp's playbook that the Biden crime family used to launder foreign money deals. It's looking more like the Biden crime family was using the FBI playbook, doesn't it? And for years, they wanted you to believe that Trump was the guy taking Kremlin cash. Excruciating years and many millions of dollars later, not a shred of evidence to back their taxpayer-funded lies. But back to Charles F. McGonagall, what drives a man to betray his country like this? Is it the money? Risking 20 years in prison for 
$225,000? Trying to understand traitors and why they do it has filled libraries with spy novels. Who knows what drove Special Agent McGonagall? Here's what we know. Charles McGonagall made a career of being the guy everyone answered to inside the Bureau. Day to day, McGonagall answered to nobody. He's answered to nobody for a long time. Put this guy in front of the politically appointed FBI director, the director listens to what he says. McGonagall is a career government employee. The director is just the new kid, simply appointed by each new president. So when a guy as senior as McGonagall runs the show, everyone below him does what he says, everyone above him does what he says. He is Mr. Invincible, at least in his head. So this was something he could get away with. And who knows who else in the FBI was involved. If McGonagall is dipping into the foreign money cookie jar, you think no one else at the Bureau is? Where does the FBI and the DOJ go from here? Investigate them all, I say. The FBI needs to apologize to Trump. The FBI needs to apologize to the American people. The FBI needs to apologize for not chasing down enemy number one, but for becoming enemy number one. That doesn't offer an escape for a complete dismantling of this sham bureau. The Kremlin's greatest victory was to compromise top-level U.S. government officials like McGonagall, then make those assets blame Trump and Republicans. Remember, Trump was the only president Putin really worried about. Trump leaned over and, in his Trumpian way, painted Putin a picture for what would happen if the Russian president ever stepped one toe out of line. Remember what he said? He said, imagine all those spirals of the Kremlin flying into the atmosphere. And you know what? Putin did imagine that. Putin seemed to have made a policy of invading Ukraine only when Biden was in office, whether as vice president or president. Meanwhile, waging a war with America by commandeering its intelligence apparatus, buying off guys like McGonagall. So in the end, McGonagall was the dupe whose arrogance and middle-aged disappointments made him a living portrait of the kind of double agent the Kremlin has long targeted. The big question now is, why are we even finding out about it? If the FBI is as corrupt as we suspect them to be, why wouldn't they just cover it up while friendlies are in the White House? It's obvious. They're holding McGonagall's head up as a peace offering to the American people in an attempt to salvage whatever shreds of dignity they can scrape out of the DNC gutter. McGonagall's embarrassing arrest and indictment is the DOJ begging the American people not to turn against them. Imagine how bad things are for the FBI if this is the guy they sacrifice, one of their top men. If we just confirmed this past month that the CIA assassinated John F. Kennedy, how many skeletons do you think are lurking in the FBI's closet? It goes back to what I asked at the very beginning. Ask average Americans how much they trust the FBI and its leadership right now. The numbers might be as low as Biden's approval ratings. In other words, any lower and we'd be in hell if we're not already there. After the break, we welcome. My- <clears throat> hey, welcome back. So, anyway, the uh, the big news here 
Um, I don't know why my Zoom is like really doing this, really having a lot of trouble with it. Um, <clears throat> great report by Chanel. She's a great follow over on Twitter. Now, of course, that's really, you know, bombastic, you know, like that's really, I mean, actually that throat's pretty, that's like cutthroat, right? <laughs> like that's a cutthroat report um, right there. Uh, she's not, she's not wrong, but I think I know, I can tell you partially why this is happening now with McGonagall. Um, one reason is that his, his ex that he hit, well, not his ex. Um, well, it's his ex, but he had an affair. He was having an affair with a woman who was in the Baltimore area um and she turned him in he broke up with her in uh 2018 time frame he already had a wife and kids by the way he had a wife and kids and he was having an affair with this woman for a long period of time which major no-no major no-no when you're a high up fbi agent because that's something that you could be exploited for right you could be blackmailed because of your affair so um major like he could get fired for having an affair. Um, but he had an affair with this woman. He broke up with her. And sometime after breaking up with her, he, I don't know if he broke up with her before his retirement or he broke up with her with after his retirement, one or the other, but it both happened in 2018. Um, she ended up going to the FBI and letting them know that he had been having this affair and letting them know that there were some things she noticed that were really strange, such as him, how much money he was able to spend on her and, uh, other expenses that didn't really fit with, um, his pay level at the FBI. And so it, she had suspicions about him taking some money on the side. Um, so anyway, that seems to explain how this investigation got started out of DC but the thing is, remember, there's two indictments with McGonagall. There's the indictment out of D.C. and also the indictment out of New York. The one out of New York is the Deripaska one. The one out of D.C. has to do with his um, his payments from the Albanians and his corruption related to Albania. They were paying him uh, tens of thousands of dollars, and he was launching investigations into people they didn't like lobbyists they didn't like um namely lobbyists that one lobbyist in particular who was friendly to trump so that explains this one how the fbi got started looking at this one out of dc but the one out of new york is different and i still have this feeling even though i have not seen evidence i have not seen any evidence of this but i still got this feeling that this connects to Durham and this is something that spun off of Durham and his SEO where he started in a, a line and he re and it ended up being better for DOJ to prosecute this than Durham to prosecute it himself. So I, I kind of think that at some point there was an investigative referral out of Durham special counsel's office um, to the New York office that ended up indicting McGonagall on his corruption charges related to Deripaska. Um, 
And we still have, <clears throat> we still have other, we have another case against Deripaska and his uh, accountant who is stateside, Olga Shrieky, I think is her name. Um, she's stateside and is being prosecuted. In fact, I haven't checked that docket in a little while. Let me check it. I don't think anything has happened with it recently. It's November 1st. Olga Shriki, last hearing, December 15th. No, the last hearing was on November 15th. This transcript got published on the 15th. So nothing new there. And in his cases, let's see, what is this motion? This is attorney assignments. So by far the most interesting thing about the attorney assignments is that Oleg is being represented and the uh, Sergei Shestikov, which was the translator who also got indicted with him, they're being represented by Bracewell LLP, which is Giuliani's old firm. Bracewell. Now he's represented. Okay, he had Seth do charm at first. Now he's got David A. Super. Let's look him up. Let's do a live dig and look him up because that's a change. It was Seth Ducharm. Now it's David A. Super. Okay. David Super offers first chair trial experience to clients across multiple industries. David's experience includes litigation involving regulatory and environmental challenges to major infrastructure projects, including pipelines, wind farms, environmental stuff, comprehensive environmental compensation and liabilities. Beyond environmental litigation, David has taken a lead role in a diverse set of complex commercial duties, blah, 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 including defensive class action lawsuits, allegations of fraud and business torts, breach of contract, partnership disputes, actions before federal agencies. David has substantial experience in banking, receiving issues, receivership issues, regulation of financial institutions, administrative law. He served as counsel to the FDIC and the former Resolution Trust Corporation for 25 years. Interesting. Liberty Media, they own Formula One now. He represented them in a case in 2007. David A. Super. Interesting. So it was Seth Ducharm, and now it's David A. Super. Still Bracewell. It makes sense that some people have brought up that Ducharm may be pulled off because both Ducharm and uh, McGonagall are former DOJ. So, um, 
Interesting. Okay. So he's got super now. Let's see. Or at least super is the attorney to be noticed. So things are being addressed to him. Let me see if they have, is there anything that says, where does does he changed attorneys? There's the arrest. Declaration of Seth Ducharm. This is a declaration of Seth Ducharm saying he supports. Adding that. This is David Super. In support of admission of David Super. Okay. Well, the attorney to be contacted and be noticed is uh, David Super. Interesting. The next date for hearing is February 24th, I think. The status conference is going to be March 6th. Okay. Close those out. All right. So I want to um, let me um, let me change screens for just a minute because I want to look something up and we're going to I have something else I want to talk about with Spygate that relates to relates to McGonagall and relates to the FBI 302 we were looking at just a moment. Let me pull it up. Um. Good morning, UK Neil. UK Neil knows who this guy is, I believe. All right, so I've mentioned Eric Garland on this show before. Not Merrick Garland, Eric Garland. And he's a great follow on Twitter. He covers a lot of swamp draining news especially stuff that has to do with Missouri and uh, St. Louis, Kansas City. Um, he's a great follow. He is a Intel analyst, has been. That's his career. That's his profession as Intel analyst. Um, great follow on Twitter. Good follow on YouTube. And I've been watching some of his videos. Um, I don't agree with everything he says, but I find him very interesting and well thought out. Um, he either, either he's got a real blind spot on Trump and has fully bought into Trump being corrupt and is having a hard time on like convincing himself otherwise, or he has convinced himself otherwise, but he knows his audience isn't ready yet. Um, because I caught a comment from him the other day where someone asked him, made a comment on his, uh, one of his posts and said, how does Trump keep getting away with all these foreign payments or whatever? And Eric Garland responded, 
well, Trump's Trump's a DOJ asset, but we're not ready to have that conversation yet. So I think he knows. I think he's aware that Trump is a DOJ asset and uh, that he isn't actually corrupt. He associates with people in order to be the bait and to trap them. Um, and that's why Trump, quote unquote, gets away all the time. I think he knows, but he also knows his audience isn't ready to have that explained to them yet. Um, but anyway, the reason I'm bringing him up and the reason I'm telling you that it's important is because of this video that he did. This video is called Real Analyst Destroys the Steel Dossier. And it's a great video. It is a great video. I highly recommend it. Um, you can look him up on YouTube, Eric Garland, Real Analyst Destroys the Steel Dossier. And he makes some really interesting points in this uh, this video that I, I just wanted to mention here, especially as relates to the 302 we just looked at that had to do with Christopher Steele and the dossier and how he took it to the media, and then Charles McGonigal. What Eric says in this video is that the Steele dossier is bad, bad, bad intel. And I don't know how many of you have ever looked at it and actually seen what the Steele dossier looks like. Um, we've all seen pieces of it, right? We've all like, if you've been watching my show for a while, we've gone over pieces of the dossier that are in various filings. Um, like in the Sussman trial or in, in the Danchenko trial and in other news reports. And you probably have seen the steel dossier, um, quoted many, many times in other news articles. But what the steel dossier actually looks like and what it is, is just a compilation of reports. They call it company intelligence reports. And there's a number of these reports that are in it. You know, so there's, it's a, like this picture, a binder of various reports that were created at different times, all stacked together. And I've never looked at it as one. I have to admit, I've never looked at the steel dossier as in totality as one packaged thing. <clears throat> and he makes the, Eric Garland makes the brilliant point or observation It's and he can, and this is his wheelhouse is that this thing is so bad. It's just bad on its face. It doesn't like just as a professional document that was created by Orbis business intelligence, the fonts don't match. The phrasing isn't right. Um, it has tons of superfluous information. Um, it's, 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 it's like a bastardization of many things. And it's not at all a finished intelligence prod, uh, uh, product. And anybody who looked at it, who had any experience in the realm of intelligence would immediately know this thing is junk. This thing was not put together by competent people who, who are experienced in this. It doesn't make sense. Like it's a bad product on its face. And yet 
it got people, it got bought into and it didn't get bought into by the FBI. The FBI got it and knew it was junk very quickly. Um, agencies got into it and knew it was junk very quickly. But remember back to what we talked about earlier in the show with this FBI 302 we were looking at. Um, and we were looking at how Hillary Clinton or how Orbis chose their client, Hillary Clinton, right? That was the horse they chose and they went to the media and the FBI was upset that they went to the media with the Steele dossier. The type of people who would fall for the Steele dossier are the media. It's this hodgepodge of all of these reports who don't, the formatting doesn't match, the fonts don't match, the the verbiage doesn't match, the tone doesn't match. It's got all this extra info and it focuses on ridiculous allegations, ridiculous rumors, ridiculous just speculation. And Eric makes this great point. Another reason why I would really recommend watching this, this video is because he makes this great point about how there are these other things that the Steele dossier could have focused on to try and paint a picture of Trump being corrupted by Russia, of Trump being a Russian agent. There are so many other things they could have keyed in on and put in the report that they didn't. And one example he gives is that Trump bought a property in Florida for a certain amount of money in like, I don't remember what year he bought it. Um, it was a couple of years before he ran for president. He buys this property and then in 2015, he sold it to a Russian for many, many tens of mi- millions of dollars more than what he had previously bought it for just a few years before. And so it kind of looks like Trump bought a property and then sold it at an inflated price to a Russian in order to gain a big amount uh, of big profit. So they could have alleged in the Steele report, hey, look, here's an example of Trump getting bought off by the Russians. This looks like some sort of a transfer of money, some sort of payment for something more than just a property in Florida. But that's not in there. Instead, they have stuff in there about PP tapes. Um, it's really weird. It doesn't make sense. But they ran with it to the media. And when I was when I was listening to this, what it was making me think of is how Trump leaned into the Russia allegations. And uh, we actually meant to talk about this on the Devolution Power Hour last Wednesday. And we started talking about a bunch of other stuff and kind of got distracted in a way. We just we just went on a bunch of trails and we had a great episode. But uh, one of the things before the show we had kind of noted down that we might get into was that Trump leaned into the accusations against him. He hired people that invited 
accusations of collusion with Russia. He made comments that invited accusations that he was colluding with Russia. And I think he did all those things on purpose. I think Trump wanted to be accused of colluding with Russia. And I think a big part of that is because he wanted the media to explain to people how collusion works and to make a big deal about how bad it was and foreign foreign entanglements, how, how they could corrupt and you shouldn't allow it in your political candidates and to make, make everybody mad about it. And, uh, all liberals talk about how you can't have these friends with these, you can't have presidents with close foreign relations like this. And I think he did that with the intent and with the knowledge that this whole thing was going to come back around on Biden and Hunter and James Biden. I think he did it. I think he did it to trick the media into this boomerang that we are the counterpunch. It's a count. It's a counterpunch. He Trump, like, like burning bright argues, Trump is a counter striker and counter strikers invite their opponent into carrying out certain moves and positioning himself in certain ways that end up making, making, a making them vulnerable to the type of strikes that you want to land. And so Trump, he invited his enemies to make these attacks on him because he knew that his enemies were actually guilty of the things they were accusing him. And he wanted them to make these accusations. And that means, and this is, this is going to be really hard to accept guys. This is going to be really hard to accept for a lot of people. I think more and more Trump did this with the knowledge that 2020 would be stolen. One, he did it with the knowledge that the, that Biden would be the nominee. He baited the media into, and the Democrats into making Biden the nominee. Hunter left the laptop while Trump was president and other laptops. I think Hunter and Joe flipped while Hunter was, while, while uh, Trump was president and Trump led them into, led his enemies into making Biden the nominee into making Biden president. He baited them into, he knew they would steal the election and he knew all of this would come out while Biden was president. I really think that I really think that this, that's what like, <laughs> that's what it makes so much sense to me. Um, that he played it like this. It's like, like I've talked before on the show, um, <laughs> the title of, uh, Eric Garland's podcast and midcast is game theory. Um, Trump doesn't play finite games. He plays infinite games. He's playing, he's playing for the long, the long view here. 
He's not looking down the road at the next one, two, three objectives and goalpost. He's looking down the road at the next 50 objectives. And I think he really leaned into this stuff. I mean, Paul Manafort being Paul Manafort owed Deripaska millions of dollars. And Trump put him in his campaign. Rex Tillerson was his secretary of state. Rex Tillerson has billions of dollars invested in Russia. Long play. He wanted them to accuse him of everything that they were guilty of. And if you watch this video that Eric Garland did, it's really, really interesting you come away thinking about how big of a joke it is. And this is the thing. This is the thing that really drives home. Like it isn't just that the steel dossier was junk. It's that it was put together by a real Intel analyst. Christopher Steele wasn't some idiot. Chris, Christopher Steele is not some Midwit. Christopher Steele was in charge of the MI6's operation, in charge of their Russian counterintelligence operation. Christopher Steele is like the equivalent of Charles McGonagall. Christopher Steele was he this is a profet he's a professional. He knows exactly what should be in an intelligence report. He knows exactly how to assemble an intelligence report. He knows exactly how to determine whether an intelligence report is is a finished product and should be turned over to an executive. He knows the difference between good work and bad work. He knows the difference between solid intel that needs to go up the chain and rumor that needs to sit and you need more evidence before you can even tell it to anybody. He knows what you need to throw out. Christopher Steele knew the Steele dossier was junk. And he knew the only people who would believe it were the media that were in bed with Hillary Clinton. And Christopher Steele was being paid, at one time being paid by the FBI, being paid by Deripaska, and being paid by the Hillary Clinton campaign. And just a, just a little bit of a, a rabbit trail here, just a little bit, um... One thing that is in these uh, these FOIA documents we just got, and I don't know where it is. I'd have to I'd have to scroll through all of these and try and find it. Somebody I saw somebody else pull it out. Uh, somebody else pulled out somewhere in these documents. There's some messages uh, on the FBI system 
um, and they describe they they mention something called crossfire latitude. Crossfire latitude, not crossfire hurricane. And I, for a long time, have thought there were two, there were parallel investigations being run. For a long time, I've thought there were parallel investigations being run and that there was one version of Crossfire Hurricane that was baked. It was bait for all the crooked FBI agents to try and go after Trump. And then there were, there was another investigation that was the real thing. Because it's not that, it's not, it's not that, um, the FBI was after Trump as a agency. It's that there were people in there who were crooked and that were after Trump because they were in Hillary Clinton's pocket, like McCabe. So I feel like, or I've always thought that there was another investigation run parallel that caught these people that were in the trap. And then out of that came Durham. Out of that came Huber. Out of that came all of, like, everything that is, is leading up to getting these people, getting the FBI cleaned up, right? And the mention of Crossfire Latitude in one of these these messages that was declassified yeah, here the, here's where they are. Those messages, it just it just makes me think that there's there is something to that. And then this, and then when I look at this meeting here, where Burroughs and Steele and the FBI are upset with one another with with Steele going to the media with the dossier, I, I just have this sense. I just have this feeling that this was a that there was a, uh, a fork in the road with the steel dossier and that they could have chosen to not go to the media and turn it into the right people at the FBI. And they would have tracked down that this was a, a frame up job on Trump by Clinton and by crooked FBI. And then they would have, it was like a different path we could have taken in all of this. But instead they chose to go with Hillary Clinton and go to the media. And that was the betrayal like that, the, that Steele and Burroughs went, chose Hillary over FBI. And that casted them. And that, that set a course that everything went on. And there was a, there was a moment there where, if they didn't do that, but they kept it in the FBI, it might have developed into a different type of investigation that would have started a lot longer ago. <clears throat> it's interesting. So, all right, guys, so that's my show for today. I do really do recommend Eric, Eric Garland, great follow on Twitter and this video right here about the steel dossier. It makes some points I've never heard anybody else make. Um, put your filter on because of how he explains things and uh, or his view of Trump that he at least publicly has. Um, 
But yeah, it's well worth your time to watch this. All right, guys. It is the weekend. I hope you enjoyed this show. I will clip out the um, the segment I did on that FBI 302. I will clip that out and put it on my Rumble Clips channel if you just want to share that one um that one segment with some friends who you think might appreciate it. Um, but yeah, if you like the show, please give me a thumbs up and uh, share this around. Really appreciate it. And uh, if you want to do more than that, all of the links to support the show are in the description on rumble or in my link tree on any of my socials. And yeah, y'all have a great weekend and uh, I will be back on. Well, I'll see you on Sunday. I'll see you Sunday night for defected over on badlands media me and Burning Bright, I'm sure, have a lot to talk about. So God bless each and every one of you. Remember, we're not going to win every battle, but we'll win this war. Have a good one.